Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. Chris Duffin of Kabuki Strength joins us to get down and dirty on some classic strength training discussion. From fabricated bars to velocity training to the latest and greatest supplements for strength, this conversation quenches the serious lifter's thirst for knowledge. As if that weren't enough, John's true intentions for having Chris on are finally known when the conversation takes a turn towards trucks. Hear about Chris's love for building borderline monster trucks in the little free time that he has. Duffin has been in the strength game since the 1980s and holds several world records. His story of humble beginnings may just be the motivation you need to deadlift a thousand pounds like he did. Here it is, episode 348. Power Athlete Nation, pull out your sawmills. What is it? Somalians. Somalians. And if you don't know what that means, shame on you. Look up the hundred slang words for money. This is another episode of the premier podcast in strength and conditioning. Ing. Power Athlete Radio. Wait, I did that backwards, didn't I? What do you mean? We, listen, Kelly, keep it rolling. We're freestyling here. We're freestyling. Oh, I thought you were a rapper. I am. Uh, B Rabbit. DJ, DJ I love Easy how, Luke. I love how white you said that. I thought you were a rapper. Yeah. That's why you're never going to be my rap battle partner. <laughs> Dude. Dude, you're so white. Like, I feel like I'm going to have like a tuna fish sandwich with mayo on it. Yeah, you're so, you're, you're so white. It just ain't right. <laughs> Drop the mic. Let's go. What do you got? Boom. Next. Oh, you next in the rap battle live? Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, if you are a longtime listener of Power Athlete Radio, you are going to be absolutely ecstatic to hear that the boat shoes conversation is coming oh, back. If you don't know what we're talking about and you're a new listener, strap yourself in, people, because the burns are few, but they are hot. And even more hot is our guest today, Mr. Chris Duffin. But before we get chatting with him... I was thinking about Luke's autobiography. You know what it would be called? Peeking at the dog and the penguin. Uh, the, the dog and the penguin. Folding stuff. Luke, you're the only person I know that can beat a joke like this. Hmm. Oh, the dead horse. Now, the number one, I oh, have yeah. to say I'm it's alarmed. A, I'm sorry, it's a dead horse and a penguin. I'm alarmed. <laughs> I'm alarmed at how, that you paid such a nice compliment. <laughs> Luke's ability to... Oh, yeah. You know, I just... Whoever this is... <sighs> Luke... Needs to come on to needs to come. I, I have much mentorship for them because there are it's certain you. faults. You think so? That's I think fine. it's you. It, I, it is. You're the only person I know that could beat a dead horse like this. How? Okay. So number one, we don't have time for this, but I am interested. <laughs> this will be the next podcast sleuthing the identity of the penguin, who is the mock I've, account I've who got promotes. A lead. I've got two leads. First off, and you guys are blind. I presented them to you, and and your well, bias is, is this blind. This is all you just trying to, to Ooh, shield this. Or am I ahead of it? And that is like it's my shield move. It's I'll tell you. Um, I would definitely say when we find out who it is, there's going to be a penguin ass beating. Mm, you think just, so? Mm-hmm. You think? And you think I'll have any involvement? Uh, I would be shocked if, if you did. If I wasn't involved in some way. Uh, I think McCulloch would just say telling you. you when it comes out, I, they emailed me on their personal email address. Dead serious. Hmm. Who did? The Penguin. Personal email. To talk trash on 
Astros cheating scandal. So hmm. I've got the dead lead. Did it come from Luke at PowerAthleteHQ.com? <laughs> no. Tex. <laughs> <laughs> so you know. You know who it is. I, I will disclose this information off air. So we'll see. Check the lead. All right. I'm curious to see if it aligns with my intel. Ladies and gentlemen, more. On, I wonder if the Penguins listening just shaking in their boots. Well, well they, I'll just they, tell you. They, they, if, they tripped up. If he's in the Block One Network... Oh, that's a good dead giveaway. That's it for sure. It's over for him. <laughs> like, Send your block back. Penguin oh, from Antarctica. Uh, I'm going to remove the block through their throat. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, ladies and gentlemen, before we get going on today's show, we are excited to announce we've got new hot shirts in the shop. Shop.powerathletehq.com. Our designer, our branding bro, Harry Heptonstall, has put together his Seek Discomfort design, and we printed it up. We also got a restock on all your favorites. Listen, people, we hear you. We've heard you, and we hear you. We got a little widget there that lets us know uh, if you want to see something that's in a different print, a different color, or if something's out of stock in your size, we're on it this year, people. Plenty of shirts, plenty of merch for you to pick up, for you to sport, and for you to wear. Just whip out your, what are they called? Folds? Your chicken. No, you scratch. Your scratch, your yards. Your scrilla scratch. Your folding stuff. Your folding stuff. Your scrilla scratch paper. Your scrilla scratch paper. What else, Tex? Shekels. Your shekels, your greenbacks. Get those shekels out. Biblical currency. <laughs> if you want to get some hot merch, spondol- Spondolux. Get your Spondolux out at shop.powerathletehq.com. Enough about us, enough about the penguin, enough about sweet gear like this. What do you know about that? Uh, let's talk to Chris Duffin. He is an author, entrepreneur, former executive coach, and most recently. Circus lifter. Circus lifter, but most recently. He has been deemed the fashionista of his century. I'm going with right it. He, he By is, he who knows the most, <laughs> Mr. John Wellborn. He is a fashionista. I don't know if he caught that joke, but it was pretty good. It was a great chat with him. He's a super cool dude. Yeah, so no, cool you guys are going to enjoy it. Hey, well, Chris, first off, man, thanks for jumping on the show. I feel like... I don't know. We're, we've been watching you from afar, so I feel like this one's kind of overdue. Yeah, right? we, we've uh, I've taken advantage of your Black Friday uh, sales for a long time. I mean, I'm always big on supporting small businesses, mm-hmm. especially people that are doing cool stuff. And so I've uh, definitely taken advantage of your of your uh, generosity for Black Friday the last couple of years, and yeah, ordered all the bars and really outfitted a bunch of stuff here at our gym. Awesome. Good to hear. Good to hear. Yeah, man. So, well, I, and I'm sure plenty of our listeners know you through just social and Kabuki strength. But uh, you know, I think this is. Uh, I, I understand you got a book that we're going to kind of chat on a little bit. But why, why don't we give these five or six listeners love you, mom? Uh, <laughs> give them an intro in case they, they're not familiar with what you do, Chris. Yeah. So yeah, my name's Chris Duffin. I'm co-founder of Kabuki Strength, uh, as well as uh, Barefoot Athletics and Build Fast uh, Formula, and so I've, <laughs> where do I start? Uh, I've been a strength athlete and educator for quite some time. Uh, worked in a lot of other fields as well, but uh, uh, I, I've known a lot for my powerlifting, which I competed for 16 years. The last like decade of that, I was ranked number one in the world, like every year straight in one discipline or another. Uh, set a lot of all-time world records and Five years ago, founded, that was when I shifted my career uh, full-time into uh, uh, the fitness and health realm with the founding of Kabuki Strength, which is a company that does education, 
coaching, and then we make uh, very unique products. It's really built around improving biomechanics, getting people in the right positions, and you know, ability to accommodate for variability in lever lever lengths, heights, mobility restrictions, all this stuff to set people up for success. And and while I've done that, I've shifted away from the competitive world and just do things to kind of fire me up. So I do exhibition lifting, I guess now I'm a circus clown of sorts, but uh, I do these feats of strength that uh, that are personal goals and then tie them with uh, charities because that's one of our pillars uh, with Kabuki strength is uh, around philo- uh, philanthropy. And so they're tied really closely with things in my life, uh, experiences that I've had uh, to use our platform or my platform to support these uh, uh, these charities. But at the same time, the feats of strength also play a lot of different roles. It allows me to, to really be creative with how I'm training, what I'm going for in different manners, and ability to express those in, in different manners than just, you know, straight powerlifting or other uh, competitive manners. It also allows me to really reach and push the use of the methodologies around training, rehab, recovery uh, to just an exponential level. Because that's where I find that I really learn at is when I put myself my back against a wall and there's no way out but to figure it out. And, you know, you can sit there and read, read books and attend seminars and just compile, you know, all the research that you want. But until you actually put it to use and really feel it, I feel that's uh, that's where the really magic and, and, and real learning comes into play. And I always end up learning so much in the course of the preparation for those events. So uh, kind of rambling off topic a little bit there. So, um, but uh, uh, I guess I'm an author now. I've got a best-selling book, The Eagle and the Dragon. And uh, yeah, I guess that's a, a, a decent summary. We work with, we work with uh, sports teams all over the place. So we're like 90% of the, the top MLB teams we work with. Uh, we work in the NBA, NFL, NHL. Oh God, ultra marathoners, or Olympic track and field, mostly like shot putters, discus, things of that nature. So we're, well, colleges, you name, you name any top college where we're, we're working with them. Uh, so we're, we're all over the place, which is really, really crazy and awesome to be in such a short period of time. But I, I think it's because we have that unique play of we're trying to just get people healthier through strength sports, through loading properly, through moving properly. And we really, even though we're a manufacturer, we see ourselves as a, an education company first. And that's the lens we look at when we're developing products and seeing gaps that are missing in the market. We're not just making stuff because, hey, that's proven it sells. Let's make one too. We don't even play that game. So unless we're adding value and doing something that fits our philosophy, uh, we don't do it. Yeah, no, I, uh, I'm a huge fan of the transformer bar. I always, um, as soon as I saw it, I was like, man, that's really ingenious because as you know, uh, every safety squat bar has different angles on it. And I've seen some forward, some back and, uh, <laughs> like some are much better than others. I mean, we have one of the original Hatfield bars, uh, at our place yeah. here. And it's, uh, I've gone and, you know, used so many different variations and seen it and been like, man, if only this tweaked this way. And so it's pretty interesting to start playing with the, uh, you know, the different settings and almost like, you know, how can I mess this thing up and create like the, you know, dig you, dig yourself in the biggest hole and create, like put yourself yeah. at the, against mechanical advantage. 
So it's been I, 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 exactly. It's crazy. It's the only bar in the world that we can actually manipulate spinal mechanics with, and it's really crazy to see what happens upstream and downstream uh, when you put that into place because. Uh, managing the spine has the largest global impact within the body. If we look at any, you know, any, any key, you know, area. And actually that's how I came up with the design. I was literally sitting in the gym one day and I had safety squat bar, uh, uh, actually Hatfield squats like scheduled that day. And I was trying to decide which bar to use. Cause I'm like, do I want to go with that really aggressive bar today? Or do I want to go with this one here? That's a little easier distance from center. Isn't as much. The angle's not aggressive. Like, which bar am I going with? And I'm like, shit, why don't we just make a bar that does all of that? And I sat there in the middle of my workout between sets, uh, sketching up the concept. <laughs> no, and it's uh, it, it's really interesting in that uh, depending on how you set the, I guess you could call it the camber almost. Um, we also have a, a, a general interest in fabrication, and I wanted to wrap with you about your Durango. And, uh, okay, buzz awesome. a little bit. But uh, as I was looking at the camber on it, I kept thinking, like, man, it's really interesting if when you can set the weight, you almost get into a situation where you either have to drive the handles up to engage the lats or almost pull the handles down to engage the lats. So yep. I always think about, like, you know, lat engagement. Am I pushing or am I pulling based upon the movement? And, I, and that part completely uh, kind of yep. blew my mind where I was like, oh man, because for the most part, in most of safety squat, you're kind of in this trying to find this neutral and then you can put yourself in a thing where it's almost pinning you down to drive up and then yep. where it's going off your back, you have to pull it down. So hang and on, I but, found that to have the, but, uh, but it, the it's most information. Too, that, that's a miss with uh, safety squat bars is they have the handle up in this weird rack position. Yeah. And so you don't have, you're not set up. It's not going to, I mean, the transformer bar is not going to turn your lats on. That's still you to do but you're set up in a position where you can do it. And so the rack position, think about anyone that squats with a safety squat bar and you can imagine visualizing, see them miss because of either fatigue, number of reps, or just too much weight. And where do they miss it all at? Right at the TL junction. Mm -hmm. Why? Because we don't have the lats engaged as a spinal stabilizer sure. connecting the shoulders into the, into the, into which the core. Is, which is also what I kind of like is if I, you know, like let's say I squatted 600 with the safety squat bar. I knew if I put on a straight bar on my back and actually could drive up and use my lats, I was good for another 75 to a hundred. Yep. And uh, it was kind of almost this deal where I was like, okay, Hey, uh, you put a bar on your back and now I'm, as I'm driving up, I'm, I'm torquing myself into position. And it was one of those things where I was like, man, this is uh this is pretty cool. And um, so let's, let's Chris describe, First off, I guess what, let's pretend if you a don't listener, know. If a listener doesn't know safety squat bar, okay, is that possible? Uh, well, I, I mean, we like, I mean, but they might not know the transformer. The fact bar. that we interviewed yeah. Fred Hatfield, uh, I don't know if you know this, Chris, but uh, we actually did the last interview with with uh, uh, Fred Hatfield before he passed away. Awesome. And um, he was a big mentor well, of the, mine, yeah. uh, especially growing up. The old powerlifter that trained me and him were friends, and so um, I'd always heard legends about him, and then. I actually joined this gym in Newport Beach called Metrics because they had one of his original bars. And then uh, when they sold the gym and it transferred into this abomination called the 12, they basically took all, all the old equipment and just threw it outside. And I went in and asked the guy, I'm like, hey, where are all those bars go? He's like, oh, they're all outside in the trash. So I'm like jumping in the dumpster and I like claimed it and was like, victory! 100%. 100% jump into those dumpers, yeah. dumpsters and get those. Uh, and, <laughs> and the guy was like, you want that old crappy bar? And I like uh, yeah. uh, like a yeah. tear rolled down my face. And I was like, had this like moral dilemma. Do I beat this dude to death with this bar? Or do I just like, <laughs> oh, this piece of crap, I'm going to melt it down, you know, and go on my way. Yeah, and, it's just a piece of junk. It's not worth, it's not worth anything. <laughs> yeah. In fact, it's worthless. Yes. Yeah, yeah. You should pay me to take it. 
<laughs> yeah, hilarious. But, but uh, yeah, you know, to answer your question, uh, just really quick, uh, safety squat bar is commonly known as a bar with handles on it. And then the the weight is actually levered forward on you. So it's really kind of loading up the posterior chain because we've got this lever hanging out in front of us that's really pulling through that range. Now, the transformer bar, what we've done is a few things. Like I said, we improve the handle position, uh, reduce like the stress uh, on the traps because a lot of times people get pushed onto these bars when they've got uh, post-solder surgery, stuff like that. And sometimes we see de-innervation problems. So we've actually got it the handles actually rolled and and forms over the over the trap to distribute the load but the key difference is that we've freed up the uh the uh distance from center so we can actually instead of a safety squat bar has about three or four inches that the, the weight is levered out in front of you so we've freed that up and you can actually move it into four different areas so making it easier and harder in any position and then we freed up the axis of rotation of that weight. So we can move it anywhere from the load behind you to in front of you to, you know, up, up top, straight above the shoulders. If you wanted to, there's no reason to don't try it, but (laughs) also don't put the weight behind you, by the way. Uh, So there's 24. You got to figure that one out the hard way. Yeah. Yeah. When it flies off your back, it doesn't work too. Cause I, I got your uh, like recommendations of like, you know, it was a little pie graph with like the, the colors. And of course we just instantly go to the red. And I'm like, uh, well, let's see what the red looks like. You know, like I'm big on pressure testing and being like, ah, uh, maybe he's just being uh, scared because he doesn't want to get sued. So let's start with the red. And so, you know, we let, like I, I put it in. I'm like, ah, you know, throw some 45s on, 135. It's not that heavy. And then all of a sudden I like go 225. I'm like, oh, all right. This yeah, one would potentially it, snap somebody's neck. Yeah, it gets it gets heavy really, really yeah. fast. Like it's an, you can make that bar so hard. It's insane. But what what the, what this allows us to do a lot of people don't realize that we're actually not really moving the load around we're actually moving your spine around so the load is always going to stay above the midfoot so what we're actually doing is manipulating the spine forward and backward allowing more spinal upriding and if we've got some issues with you know he said, I, I like to reference the the seven foot six NBA players that people like to make fun of on Instagram because they can't squat well they can't back squat. They're not built to be able to hit depths without compromising their spine. And, and so we can actually most people change. can't dunk a basketball either. So exactly. So it's good. We're yeah. all different. We yeah. need to accommodate. We can't just say everybody needs to be able to do a, a back squat. Well, everybody needs to be able to do a squat, but the load specifically sitting on your traps is just something that is randomly, we put a bar there and now we've decided everybody needs to do that. Um, so when we move that load forward, a lot of times as like trainers, athletes, we kind of know this stuff. We see somebody struggling with a squat. We hand them a kettlebell and teach them a goblet squat. What happens? We get really great alignment of rib cage uh, to pelvis. We get cueing of the core automatically comes on with the load in front of us. Rectus comes on diaphragm, creates some pressure inside. All these good things happen. And then with the load in front, we get more spinal uprighting. So their massive butt wink or spinal flexion that we might've been concerned with disappears and we go, okay, now go squat and do those sorts of things. And there is some teaching component that allows it, but some people can't do that either. Um, and so it's really crazy though, is like we go, let's go back to that seven foot six uh, NBA player. You watch them squat. They're also typically knees going way valgus. They're stopping halfway. It just looks horrible. 
Well, if you actually cleaned, like put the load in front of them and had them squat with a transformer bar or a goblet squat, like I said, the transformer bar loads up the posterior chain. But what we'll actually see is because of the improvement in spinal mechanics, all of a sudden we haven't cued like knee position, anything with hips, all of a sudden their lower extremities go right into the process that they're supposed to. Knees are out, they're sitting between their hips, you know, the, the, the flexion of the spine disappears. And because they're doing it, they naturally end up going like three to six inches deeper. Well, what's that going to do? It's going to load up the anterior chain as well, because we, now we've got a greater range of motion actually moving those through a range. So with that lesser weight, you're talking about 225 want to kill you. You're actually getting a greater training effect and actually a more athletic training effect because we're actually getting the anterior and posterior all actually working further together through a greater range of motion. So it's really... It's really cool stuff that we see happen. Uh, and I see this all the time because I'll go into, you know, I work with a lot of sports teams, a lot of these outliers. And it's crazy because I'll say, give me your no squatter list, you know, <laughs> which is usually people with whatever. They just have poor mechanics. A lot of them, poor mechanics has led to injury. So it's typically their injury list people. I'm like, let's load this up and watch them squat. And it's just like the coaches are just like drooling because they're, they're like, there's this is beautiful. I'm like, I know it's really cool. <laughs> we can actually do this if we don't try to just shove everybody into this same thing that doesn't necessarily work for everybody. Yeah. Well, and that's, a, that's like the low bar, high bar. That, well, we did our fair share of seminars too, Chris. And like that question was always the most frustrating. Yeah, there was, uh, <laughs> Cause it's like, it's a lever, whichever right? works best for you. It's easy well, to argue about on the internet, but at the end of the day, if you squat more and you're in better position with one, do it. There was Other a, than that, um, I don't. I don't care. Don't tell me whether you got a low bar, a high bar, a mid bar, a low low bar. I don't care. Just do your best squat. Uh, there, do, yeah. there was a book on innovation. Uh, I think Tex gave me that talked about um, when they originally got into flying. Uh, you know, like a or uh, like war fighters. Yeah, the, for yeah. for the cockpit that uh, they were having like a tremendous uh, failure rate, and it was like over seventy percent of the people that entered the air in this. You know, in these different like World War One planes ended up either crashing or losing in battle. And they started looking for you know why is this happening? And after going through all of this, you know, like you know different pilots training, whatever, they couldn't solve it. And then they figured out that if they made the cockpit and the controls adjustable, then uh, everybody could get in and kind of like we do today, you get in the car, you put your seat up, you put your seat back, you pull the you know steering wheel. They did the same thing before they were fixed. And by creating adjustable controls, all of a sudden the survival rate like shot to like 95%. And the only people that were getting shot down was when they were making strategic errors, you know, against, you know, uh, in combat. And I always think, uh, especially with like lifting weights, we're kind of stuck in this model of, you know, here's a fixed implement, here's a bar, everybody's got to put it on their back. And I yep. thought what was interesting when I saw the Kabuki uh, transformer bar was the fact that it was really the first time I'd seen something along the lines similar to that deal with innovation with the, cockpit, uh, with the cockpits. Yep. And I thought, man, this is really interesting. And then, you know, uh, if you have tight shoulders or you have a shoulder injury, like for me, I'm, I'm dealing with a shoulder injury. Uh, I got to the point where like I couldn't get the bar on my back into a position that was beneficial. And it, when I did, it got into this weird fucking angle and then I'm rotating into it. And I just got to the point where I'm like, man, I can't do this the way it is. And then all of a sudden in this position now, all of a sudden it allows me to continue to train at a high level. I thought it was very, very intelligent. Yep. Thanks. It's, it's, uh, and that's what we try to, so that's the transformer bar is a great way for people to understand what we do 
like from a design element with with Kabuki Strength, or what we're trying to accomplish, is getting people in better positions and allowing for uh, you know that variability. Did and, uh, uh, did did you design that in like on pen and paper? Or was that a SolidWorks deal? Uh, yeah, it was a uh, it was napkin. That's how typically okay. how I uh, it's typically I, how I work. So <laughs> I was just imagining you sitting behind the computer with SolidWorks, fucking you know, figuring out all the modeling and this stuff. I, I was I was a champ at SolidWorks like in the nineties. <laughs> but uh uh I uh I, my my so I've got it for listeners, I, I've got uh basically a dual engineering degree, but I never actually uh worked as an engineer. I ended up leading the teams or leading, you know, the uh, engineering manager to report up through through to me. And so I've worked I've worked in aerospace, uh automotive, uh high tech windows and doors uh but uh, mostly those first three and did a lot of uh, a lot of my work was like as general manager director of operations basically coming in to turn around companies and or get them prepped for sale or you know growing them and uh because very early right out of college i realized i don't want to spend eight hours a day looking at a computer so i've got the skills but i ended up going down the leadership route uh with that awareness that i really wanted to work on coaching and mentoring and helping people achieve more. And so that's where I spent my career, but I still worked in this highly engineered world where I was responsible for all the engineering, but I actually worked out really well because a lot of engineers or engineers managers weren't used to having somebody at my level that understood everything that they were doing. But yeah, I've, I've basically lost the skills for doing all the cat. Like I can muddle my way around, but it's been, so long so i i've got an engineer on staff he actually worked for me uh when i was doing a uh turnaround in an automotive uh, uh company a number of years ago and he worked for me for a number of years and uh i ended up hiring him into uh, kabuki strength so he takes my paper napkins and deciphers them into uh actual drawings and models and develops all the fixtures and the testing and the testing procedures and he does the the real engineering work and uh, he always laughs because he's like if only people knew there was a skinny mountain biker behind all this, <laughs> all this stuff. <laughs> I was uh, in Salt Lake City last week uh, and uh, went and hung out with, I don't know if you know Joel from Overkill Racing Chassis. He builds uh, like monster yes, trucks. I yep. So yeah, I went out and hung out with him for three days and uh, absolutely melted my mind on his solid works and like went through all the designing of his trucks and how they're able to, you know, put all this deal together and then send it out and have a structural engineer go through and figure out stress points and how they were, you know, spreading the load with like, you know, the frame on the, on the monster truck, I think is like a two inch quarter wall chromoly. And then they're able to use like 120 walled as, as kickers to spread the load in terms of different impact points. Man, we sat there for about two hours and he modeled all this stuff. And I was like, man, this is, uh, and then, you know, and then when it's all done, send it out, get it all laser cut, brings it back. I walked into a shop. It was so clean. And I realized all of his parts were all, you know, like keyhole. So keyhole. Yep. And then it was just, yep. Assembly. I, it's, it's lovely. I do the same thing. Uh, so I do, it was I do all my, I, I'll do a lot of my own, uh, laser files for, uh, for my, for my personal hobby stuff and send those out. And yeah, it's just great. You get everything in. It's all key locked into place, so you just assemble it, weld it all up, and just it's it's beautiful and fun. <laughs> yeah, it was great. I yeah, I mean we we welded the first day, and then the second day I came in, he's like, "Hey, I got to cut some stuff. I need you to weld all this." And so I put about six hours and burned a bunch of his stuff in, which was killer. And uh, 
yeah, I mean, he's uh, he's probably the best MIG welder I've ever seen. And uh, I was just amazed at one at like, was looking at, you know, how he's swapping through settings, different machines, welding chromoly, welding, you know, it was, it was really, really, um, it's, it's killer to see people at the top of the game uh, in a professional shop doing like the most incredible stuff. I was like, okay, I'm a fucking hack, but uh, let's glue some metal <laughs> together, you know? So it was well, neat to come home with that. Well, you're uh, one of the few people to uh, work on a work on a rig then that has actually more clearance than the uh, the war rig sitting in my shop. Because Dude, I was actually gonna, I was going to ask you on that. It's actually only a, a real true monster truck actually has more clearance than what I have. So what do you? Um, uh, I, I remember a long time ago uh, you were trying to. I think I think you were trying to put like a Perkins three cylinder diesel in there. And I'm always a big uh, fan of uh, putting weird diesels in uh, in, yeah. in trucks that they aren't supposed to go in. So when I saw that, I was like, "Ooh, was that what it was?" Uh, uh, that was a different rig that I uh, that I was built and running. So uh, ended up with a Kubota turbo diesel and a Suzuki Samurai, uh, full linked up exo cage. It was a fun little rig, uh, but this one is uh, I'm running uh, Unimog uh, axles, four wheel steering with 47 inch tires, which people typically don't do because uh, you'll blow up the axle. Sure. They're only one and a quarter tons, but I've gone through and developed and, and re-engineered basically everything. So I've got 300, 300M material, the mm -hmm. same material that's used on the main landing gear beam on a 737 is my axle shafts. Sure. Uh, cryo treated everything. And then I built the, the whole bracing system around the gearboxes to support. It's are the, uh, there's gear that, reduction in the Unimog axles too, right? There, there's gear reduction in there. It'll what's still, the, it'll, it'll still cruise around 90, hundred miles an hour. What's your, uh, the, what's your crawl in that now? It's about 300 to one. <laughs> So I've got a, I've got, <clears throat> well, I've got a four-speed transfer case, so it allows. Uh, so what you're running an Atlas in it, an Atlas four-speed. Yeah, I got an, an Atlas four-speed in there. Yeah, I, I build. Uh, um, I like Chevy piece of crap eighty square bodies, so I put twelve valves, and we do, you know, one, you know, one tons, and I built a, um, you know, ranch truck that I'm gonna rip apart right here, and I think I might. Um, Think, you know, I four linked another truck, so I'm thinking about maybe doing a uh, parallel four link and a triangulated four link in the rear on that. So I'm, uh, I've been after seeing all this stuff on SolidWorks, I like came home and just started <laughs> sketching, and then I sent a bunch of stuff back and was like, "Yo, man, can you put this stuff together for me?" Yeah. So, but uh, why Unimogs? I'm, I'm surprised you didn't go with AMRAPs. Um, availability. It was uh, actually I was really looking for. I, I really wanted that clearance and. At the time, it was really unique. A lot of people weren't building uh, portal axle rigs. There was no aftermarket parts when I started this because I started this project about 13 years ago, honestly. Oh. <laughs> so and it was probably a year before that because I actually imported the axles from Germany. They got delayed gotcha. in shipment and blah, you know, it just went on and on and on. A um, friend of mine's building one with four tons at the same time. But wow. uh, uh, I wanted to really see what I could get because there's so much clearance with the 404 uh, Unimog portal. Sure. So like with those 47s, the high point is the lowest point of the vehicle is the bottom of the pumpkin, which mm -hmm. is above my knee. Yeah, no, it's, so I, that's, that's yeah. why I went that route is just a, it's, and then the whole undercarriage is super clean. I've got these, uh, solid, uh, aluminum 70, 75 aluminum, uh, links two and a half inch that are 60 inches long that run center to center. So there's literally, did you build a subframe on it, or is it, uh, or is it linked into the frame? Uh, it's all new subframe, yeah. So it's all subframed. So yeah, it's, it's, it's like a drop down, like a like a monster truck almost. You built a lower subframe. Pretty much, 
yeah. Pitching. Yeah, I just used the body uh, because uh, originally I was building it for doing, uh, I, I was I actually built the whole tube chassis with mm -hmm. the axles and drivetrain in it. And I was getting ready. I was planning on racing at a King of the Hammers. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm like, from California and, and dude, uh, we've been to Hammers. <laughs> And uh, so yeah, the very, uh, Johnson the, the very first institution, the very first race, you know, it was run by the guy that made my axle shafts. There's 13 guys the year prior mm -hmm. to it actually being a thing. Yeah. And I'm like, and he was building my rig, you know, building my axles at the time, my shafts at the time. I'm like, I'm doing this race. And so I had the whole rig. And then I realized, you know what, Chris, you already have a lot of very expensive, very time consuming sports. <laughs> Maybe you shouldn't do this to a competition level. So I ended up selling the whole tube chassis and the drivetrain. And I'm like, I'm just going to have a four-door rig so I can go trail wheeling, take my family, drop my kids off at school if I want. I can do anything, <laughs> in it, but I could still desert race. I could do, you know, all that stuff. So anyway. And, and then, uh, yeah, I was digging on the exo cage. I, um, you know, there's always the, like, the interesting dilemma between you know running uh because i've done interior cages and i've done some exo stuff you know the idea of like hey if i put in an interior cage i got to worry about people hitting their head and i got to pat it and i'm going to cut down on interior room and if especially if you got kids because i got three little kids too so i'm like how do we do this and then you're looking at the exos cage but then you got to be able to bend it in such a way that it fits tight because if not it looks like some fucking trailer bullshit where you're like God uh, damn it. well that's like people ask trailer me shit People ask me, why did I go with the Durango instead of some other rig? And I wanted a four-door rig, and they're all so boxy. And I didn't want the big nodes. I wanted the sweeping lines to give it a be more beautiful aesthetic. I, and everybody's like, it's a Durango. It's going to look like crap. And now that's done, they're like, oh, my God, that looks amazing. And I'm like, well, that's because – but I had to actually – I built the tubing roller myself from scratch oh, just, to roll the tube, just to roll the tube to make it. And then it actually, the whole thing runs all the way through the body as well. So it is an internal and external cage spreaders all the way through the, behind the four doors, which was really hard. Sure. Like get all the seating, but it yeah. does that behind the driver's and passenger seat. It's runs all the way from top to bottom into the link mounts and then spreads through the side side to the, to, to the side, uh, exo cage as well. All we need is a 50 cal on top and you're ready for the fucking. Zombies. I already have that planned. Actually. Oh. I already have it planned. So. <laughs> I, I was going to say, man, we're, we're like, I was telling somebody today, uh, people um, are like, why is there so, why is the, why is the top built up so much? <laughs> huh? You're like, cause I don't I, you I worry this, about that. <laughs> I got this fucking remote controlled swivel mount that we're going to machine that I'm going to have with this little motor while I'll be able to like rotate my 50 cal and have a minigun. Uh, I've got I, a uh, shooting instructor from uh, Leopold and uh, Leopold and Stevens. Uh, who uh, has uh, the their shooting their test ranges over in the Central Oregon Desert? Is that like, Buck? Yeah, I got, what's that? Is is his name Buck? Uh, I don't. Well, he's actually uh, my one of my employees knows oh, him. Okay, he's the shooting guy, and he he went and took his course out there. Yeah. So I don't know his name, but he showed him the war rig, and he's like, "We're putting a fifty cal on that, and we're coming out here." <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. Yes. Uh, we, yes. We, yes, we are. <laughs> are you? Uh, you're in Portland, right? Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, um, yeah, no, I, I'm always a big fan of Portland. Uh, when we were kids, we, my mom's from Vancouver, so we would drive up from LA and always stop in like Portland and that area and then go to Seattle all the way up. So it's always nice. But last time we were there, I was like, oh man, this place is, uh, kind of sketchy. Changing. <laughs> it's it's a little different, but man, I'll tell you the, 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 the food and drinks are amazing. So I don't care what people say. So yeah, no, my, I'm, my buddy owned a restaurant there or a bar that, uh, Tex actually got to go to. He since sold it. It was called the Bible club or it is called the Bible club. I don't know if you've ever run into that one, but it's a pretty good spot. I'll check it out. 
Yeah. It, it's very unassuming. It's in an old home, but you walk in and it's this grandiose, old timey, 1920s. It's supposed speakeasy. to be a speakeasy. Yeah. Yeah. Speakeasy. It's, it's beautiful. Yeah. Nice. Pretty amazing. So, what, uh, I was going to uh, ask you some questions about not only like your, you know, your training, but also some other things. Like, uh, as I was doing some research on this, um, it seems like, uh, your progress maybe in like the last five or seven years, I mean, you were a seven, 800 pound squatter and now I just watched something where you're doubling a thousand. What do you think was really the biggest change that allowed you to kind of reach that leap? Yeah. Uh, not doing weight cuts. Oh, <laughs> That's part of okay. it. So like, uh, when I set the all time world record in the two twenty class, you know, my best squat and training leading into that was nine forty four. So I'm not that far off of where I was. And that was like six years ago, I think, when I did that. But the weight cuts just fucking <clears throat> were murder, huh? They were murder. And I and, and I got there because, you know, it was a ten pound cut, and then it was a fifteen pound cut, and you know, over the course of my career it was always just a few pounds more than last time. Just a few pounds more. And uh, next thing you know, I'm walking around at 260, cutting to 220. And, uh, you know, not a brilliant thing to do. Oh. So, I mean, I, I got a few records out of it, but I think it really uh, hampered my performance. The other thing is I'm only training for one thing at a time. So all of my training and recovery resources are dedicated to one thing. So now leading into that, obviously, the developmental blocks include a lot more, right? the final phases when I start cutting everything out and really ramping up the intensity and the frequency, those other things start getting dropped out. So when I did the thousand pound deadlift for almost a triple, you know, the final six, probably eight weeks, nine weeks, that's all I did was deadlift twice a week. And so it allows, you know, to, it's so much different not having to squat and deadlift and do all this every week. And it's not something I would recommend. People have to understand I've been training since 1988. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a big person, and I really don't have a desire to be bigger. Uh, so I don't need a lot more, you know, other things going on. So it's like, what about, what about, you're not benching. You haven't benched for years. How do you maintain your upper body? I'm like, well, you realize there's a lot of other ways to train your chest than just a bench press, right? So it's, it's okay. Like I don't compete in the bench press, so I don't, you know, I can do push-ups, I can do flies, I can do dumbbell presses, I can, I can do all sorts of things. And, uh, but people have trouble wrapping around because they're comparing it to their own training. And that's my point is. Well, people fail at the different. margins of their experience. And uh, we yeah. find that a lot of people, when they fail at the margin of the experience, it's because their experience is so narrow. And you're mm -hmm. like, of course you don't understand it because. I have highly refined tr movement patterns too. So like, because I'll go like. I went a year and a half without squatting and I did about the same without deadlifting. Like, how do you do that? And I'm like, well, it's still an axial loaded movement, right? Just top to bottom loading through the spine. And so for the last four years, it doesn't matter whether I'm squatting or deadlifting, as long as I'm doing one of one of those, because what I'm trying to do is increase my tolerance to axial load. That is the more that I do that, the more work capacity that I'll have. Now you sound like a CrossFitter talking about work capacity. Uh, I, and the, but the, I, I did that for a reason. Because when you say work capacity, people think about sleds, prowlers, um, swinging ropes, all this sort of stuff. And understand what you're, what you're training for. Okay? 
So in powerlifting or a lot of strength sports, it's a very axial loaded movements. So our ability to increase work capacity would mean that I can train more of those movements during a, a shorter time period. As I make progress with that, I'll get stronger. So it, those other things are working on, you know, aerobic, you know, you know, uh, capabilities and things of that nature, but it is actually not going to enhance your ability to squat or deadlift more during the course of a week. So it's really understanding the vectors. So let's take like the, the hip thruster, for example. So a lot of people go, Hey, I want to do hip thrusters because it's got high level of glute activation. I'll use that because there's a lot of controversy going around around that right now. But, uh, <laughs> but are you, uh, are you saying the research was doctored? Nah, it, let, let's just, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm fucking kidding with you. I'm just throwing it out there <laughs> so, because so, I'm, I'm, uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm right in. I know. I, uh, hip thrusters are great. If we understand what vector we're moving in. So this is the point. So axial loading is top to bottom. Sure. Uh, a hip thruster is front is back to front. Okay. So if we look at the research on hip thrusters, you'll it's find like that it that actually how Tex wipes his butt right back to front. Yeah. Right, Tex? And some are, some are, some are many. So let's say uh, a bent over row is a front to back and an axial loaded. So it's a mixed vector. So like in my training program earlier in my training, when I was wanting to develop strength in my, in my back to be able to support the loads that I'm doing, I had those in my program, but I had to start tapering them as my other axial loads started going up. Right. But let's get back to the hip thruster. It's a, a back to front. So if we look at the research, it has a much higher incidence of improving our ability to jump farther and run faster, but not jump higher or squat more even though it's training glutes, which are a hip extender, but understanding the vector and what other muscles it's working together with helps you understand that. And I think a lot of people miss that. Like well, I'm just going to train this muscle group. Well, well, well people are looking at like exercises one-to-one. -one. Uh, I'm doing this because I saw some chick with a nice butt doing it, or I yep. read this article that talked about, and, and uh, I'm not, you know, I mean, it's, it, uh, as you know, man, people aren't very strategic in how they're doing it. I mean, you know, we're talking about like, I, I love, um, people being like, Oh, I back squat for the posterior chain. And I'm like, have you ever looked at any muscle activation type stuff? I mean, the majority <laughs> of the back squat is always going to be rectus femoris. And I'm like, if yep. you're ex squatting exclusively to try to develop your posterior chain, I think there's a way better. I mean, I'm Charlie Francis made a good point to me once that, uh, you know, the eccentric hamstrings and Nordic hamstring curls are by far the greatest activation of the hamstring. And if you can do those, you'll never, uh, you know, pull your hamstring. So I think people run into this, uh, Either they don't understand the biomechanics, they don't have a background in it, or they're just in this monkey see, monkey do thing where they saw so-and-so do it, so I'm going to do it. Exactly. And so hip thrusters are very valuable if you know what they're good for. Uh, they're also good for building hypertrophy of the glutes, which is, again, going to make a nice-looking booty as well, but not necessarily going to play that well into what I'm wanting to do. So, so it doesn't matter that I took a year and a half to tie it back, break from deadlifting, or a year and a half break from squatting. I was still working on increasing my axial load tolerance for the last four years to try to hit these goals. And, and then that kind of plays a role into, you know, the periodization leading into it, which is around exercise selection. So a lot of people think, you know, periodization is just sets and reps, which is not the case. It's a matter of developing specific qualities in blocks. And then as you're moving to the next one, retaining qualities from the last one and building the next set of qualities that you need. 
And to, so to make some sense of that so that people use it. So that's where I, I use the, the bent over row example is I knew early on that I needed to develop a lot of upper back and lower back strength to be able to hold positions for the amount of reps that I was going to have to be doing with very heavy squats, among other qualities. So very early in the program, a lot of rowing work, a lot of good mornings, um, things of that nature that are going to really work those structures and develop the strength. And then taking a movement that was a squat. So it's, I started with front squats and then moved into getting more specific as I get closer. Really easy concepts. Uh, I use the transformer bar for most of that because I could play with different settings. I have different training effects within a week or from block to block. Uh, so each block, we'd change the two settings and I would have two different settings during the week. Again, really working on developing the qualities. And then as we got to the final phases where we're at now, it is starting to, to reduce a lot of those, those other things. So I was still doing, I could still recover enough that I was doing upper body training. But in a couple blocks prior, it was down to doing like push-ups and curls and maybe, you know, some front and side laterals just to kind of keep a little size pump, just mostly because I just enjoyed doing it. And that was the extent of it. And then that started disappearing now as we get into the current blocks where I'm squatting an average load of 950 pounds plus per workout and hitting like eight repetitions at that. So we're talking in a two month block, I'm hitting, you know, between 70 to 80 repetitions with over 900 pounds. So when you're doing that, you, there, you don't have, you don't have any time for recovery to, to use on those others. So that's when I started stripping it all the way down to right now. That's it. That's the extent of my training besides movement work, preparation, um, that sort of thing. What, what, what were you asking? Oh, I, I was going to say, I know you use the velocity based training in the rep one. So I'm just curious on, um, like the average, uh, you know, meters per second or how fast those concentric movements look. Yeah. So, um, it's going to vary from person to person. So we, we actually, we have a velocity profiling tool that people can download for free on our site. So if you go Google auto regulation book of methods, you'll find an article on using velocity as well as sub other subjective and objective measures uh, for auto regulation. And then we have a velocity profiling tool. So a lot of people, their max effort on a, you know, a squat is going to be around like maybe 0.2 meters per second. Okay. And this is velocity. That means speed. So the higher the number is, the faster it is. So a 0.3 meters per second, you'd think is like 30 miles per hour. That'd be faster than 0.2 to be 20 miles per hour. Just making numbers up there. Right. Some people get confused on what's better. So my max, so the more qualified a lifter is, my qualified, I mean, you know, length of time under the bar, movement patterns. There's a whole lot of things that kind of come into it. But let's say I'm expertly qualified. Is a, okay. We'll give you that. Uh, but uh, <laughs> uh, you'll find that they can actually uh, grind through much lower velocities because it's, you're, 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 you're really developing the neurological ability to recruit more muscle fiber and get those weights moving that you wouldn't have been able to do earlier. So that's where a lot of the strength comes from. If I, my strength level stays the same, and a certain weight is still moving at 2.2 meters per second, but now I can move 0.15 meters per second, 
my max actually went up. So, so my maxes are around like 0.1 meters per second. So right now, most of my training, this last block has been doubles. So we're in the 0.17 to 0.23 range for a lot of my movements. So I gave you two different, it's a, usually a 5% window that we, that we deal with. So for using velocity as an auto-regulation tool, let me try to simplify this. It's a very easy tool. So, cause a lot of people are used to doing percentage-based training, sure. which makes sense. I tested my max as 500 pounds. I develop a program that's going to theoretically give me a 10% gain over the next 12 weeks. Good luck with that. Unless you're a newbie. Uh, <laughs> and, um, and so you go, Hey, I'm going to be doing this week, uh, so many reps in the 80 to 85% range. Next block, I'm going to be working in the 85 to 90% range. It's going to be less reps, so on. So what we do is we take and replace. So we create a velocity profile for an individual for a lift. And so now we know what the speed should be at 90%, 80%, 87% doesn't matter. And so we program in the exact same way, except we replace speed with, or we replace the uh, percentage with the speed. So what that allows you to do without, without like doing the math behind it, but you're basically training off of your actual daily max, what you're actually recovered to, what your potential is. So a lot of people think about auto-regulation as pulling back, which it is. So if you had a late night, you know, kids up sick or you're out partying late with your buddies and you're going to come in, you're probably going to have to train with a lesser weight to hit that same velocity range. But what we find is if you actually have an objective measure for, for auto-regulation, you find a lot of opportunities where you have an opportunity to take advantage of gains or progress that you didn't realize. So for me, if I'm training, you know, I've said eight, 900 pound deadlift or squat for reps, guess what? It's heavy. So really heavy and it feels really heavy. And so I don't know that I was supposed, you know, I had 815 pounds planned for the day for three sets of three. I get to the third set and I go, I'm going to be smart. I'm not feeling it today. I'm going to, I'm going to not do this one. And that might be how you look at it subjectively. But then we look, if I was using velocity, I may look at it and go, Oh, actually I've got that last set in me. And usual response is, I flip off the velocity device and then I go do my last set. But, nice. uh, but the other thing is you may find that I could have been training with 820 pounds or 825 pounds because guess 815 pounds stinking heavy. And if you're a 500 pound squatter, 450 pounds is stinking heavy. So it's really hard to know that little bit, that five pounds here, that five pounds there where you're actually progressing ahead of plan and you can take advantage of that. And so you imagine that over a course of a training cycle, over the course of years. And so I'm the example of this. I mean, I started playing around with this around 2010 or so when everybody was still doing velocity work as speed work. And I said, no, this is, this is an indicator. This tells us something uh, that when we're using heavy, that we, can, that, we can, that we can use this. But it still has to be effort-based. So we call it effort-based training. Because the other thing is you go into the gym, it's like, hey, it's not moving. I, I'm going to have to train with less weights today. And the first question is, 
am I trying hard enough? <laughs> Go try harder. I call it violent intent. Um, yes. You know, we use compensatory acceleration and, you know, I mean, I first heard about it when I was 14 years old, you know, about for, through Fred or from Zangus from Hatfield. And it was always like, you know, you have to move the bar with violent intent. You have to try to break the weights. And, yep. so you know, you have, you yeah. have to do that. You can game the system if you don't try. Yeah. No, I mean, these, uh, I remember, uh, and you, these guys have heard me a million times say it. Old man Zang has told me, don't lift weights like old people have sex. Slow and careful. Be <laughs> yep. violent. Violent intent. Yep. And it, uh, it, it, like it permeated and allowed me to go on and, you know, do what I did for a long, long time just for the mere fact that as mechanical advantage increases, so does speed. And I'm going to try yep. to fucking break something. And, and so that's actually when you've actually got a number associated with it too. So it helps my training because I'm an ego lifter. Yeah. Anybody that follows me can probably figure that out. No, but it helps. It helps me. I I have, (laughs) I have trouble with the lighter weights sometimes getting motivation on those days, but I know if I've got now an objective, like, Hey, it says 815 pounds is what I expect to be trained with today. And if I beat these numbers, I can add more weight. So it makes me try harder on those sessions that I'm just not fired up for because it's not heavy enough to get me excited, but now I've got a goal. I've got a target. I've got my past experience to beat because our database on our training plan will go back and find what you've done prior at these ranges and pull it up and say, here's, here's where we think that you're going to be based on, you know, the past. And it's like, boom, that's the number I'm going to beat, but I actually have to do it. Like I have to put in the effort to get that number to read what I want it to, or I don't get to. So it's uh it's it's useful from that psychological that effort that effort standpoint is it something that's required no is it a useful tool yeah yeah but i mean when you're trying to squat a thousand plus pounds i mean you start talking about the margin of error becomes so tiny that now all of a sudden uh things like five percent or you know five pounds becomes you know on a long enough timeline becomes you know a monstrous deal i mean for somebody who's you know, trying to squat 300 pounds and you're like, uh, I don't really care about the speed. I just need you to get underneath this bar and move it five times and it's going to look ugly, but maybe we'll get, you know, one piece of gold in there. Yep. But I think after a while you get to the point where, you know, it's just like, I mean, whether it be, you know, king of hammers, I mean, you can go out and build a rig that'll survive, you know, a little Oregon backcountry, like something like the gambler, which I'm a huge yep. fan of the gambler. Um, but then when you go to King of Hammers and you start seeing pressure testing and you're looking at these at these different vehicles and how they're able to, you know, not only run like a desert race, but, you know, climb up back door and all that. It's just it's just the margin bear becomes so tiny for the person who becomes the winner that, you know, you have to start kind of tweaking all of the knobs. It, 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 exactly. It, it, it's uh, there's not any one thing that's the secret. It's just a matter of putting it all together and using every every resource as a capability. So it's uh, yeah. It's definitely not something I recommend for new lifters, though. Yeah. Um, well, the uh, their, their movement patterns are too all over the place. It's just not a usable tool. Again, RPE and stuff like that, pretty challenging for new lifters, too, because everything's heavy. Ten. Yeah. Ten. Like, no. Well, we saw that, <laughs> Weights too. are heavy. I mean, a little we'll, awakening to you. <laughs> we would use, uh, like, we were big with, um, you know, I got stuck within, you know, we read a bunch of Brian Mann stuff and we became friends with him. And then I was testing the shit out of the, out of, uh, with the Tendo units. And, uh, you know, like watching people, you know, and then putting the Tendo up and then all of a sudden like watching them do a squat, then them seeing the flashing number and then realizing like that they're changing their squat every time trying to find the most advantageous fastest position. And sometimes their fastest one was by far their worst squat. 
So yeah, we kind of that, turned it away from him yeah. and wouldn't let him see the numbers. We just need you to, you know, I need you to move as fast as you physically can. And then it just became this, I don't know. I, I, I think our last day using it was uh, Luke had a deadlift, and I think he was 0.001 mm, meters no, per second. There's zero in there somewhere. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he literally pulled the bar off the ground, and he didn't crack it. And just as he started pulling, I screamed, you got this, and he stayed in it. And I, I think I looked at my watch. I think I might have had a sip of coffee, and I came back, and he was still in the fight. <laughs> and at that point, like, the Tendo just didn't yeah. even record, and we were like, okay. Yeah, this is crazy. <laughs> yeah. It was like my yeah. – I have an on-and-off relationship with deadlifting, mostly off. 99 percent off and uh well every time he deadlifts he gets sick for like a month and yeah, then claims it was crazy it, he, man. he calls it the deadlift flu <laughs> it was it was bonkers so i don't know why we were deadlift we were deadlifting heavy that day and yeah. you know i i'm like that bar didn't move but i've also been under bars where you don't think it's moving and it's moving and yep. like i just yep. gone dark and i heard the big guy go it's moving <laughs> you got this stay in it it wasn't moving but then it started to move and yeah. it, it got there eventually and man i that was a Worst day of my life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I always joke. I'm like, he was point zero 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 one meters per second. Yeah, like, how slow is that? I'm like, yeah, well, it didn't click. And I think we had. The, did we record it or something? Because yeah, I remember I went we back, back and I'm like, it's like a 18 seconds of a pull. I'm like, okay, so let's calculate the distance here. Okay, yeah, that's re- didn't even me- didn't register. No. Yeah, it was it was funny. I'm like, how tall are you? How far is the bar? Me? And so we started measuring. It. We're like, oh, okay, yeah, world record. But I think one of the things you said there is a, an important distinction to understand like with our approach to velocity training versus what we see. So people gaming the system to try to move because the goal is to move faster Mm -hmm. versus ours is to move more weight. And we use that as an indicator because I've seen this with people. Oh yeah, we do VBT. And I walk into the teams and the guys are up on their toes, deadlift, you know, doing like almost a little, because what are you talking about? I have no idea. (laughs) They're like, that's, Because they get a faster number that way, but they're actually not able, they're not able to move more weight that way because they're, they're, you know, and it's like, no, you're not, you're not doing a VBT correctly. You're like, like I know how to cheat too. And you're cheating. Yeah. Little shrug, little calf raise. <laughs> yeah. Lock for the scoreboard. Yeah. Put, put 500 pounds on there and let me know how that goes for you. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's a, it is a good, um, again, like for the, the lifter who has accumulated the, the reps, it, it's a interesting green light, right? When you, on a day you would have done 80%, right? Yep. But when you're at your 80% and your, your VBT or your velocity is way over where it could be or should, well, it was, you were planning for it to be, it's that green yep. light to go heavier. Like there it's, you know, yep. we talk about the uh, kind of gab, gambler steps, no one to hold them, no one to fold them. And um, that's a, a and, and sometimes your mind, that. sometimes your mind is not, like you think it's an off day and it's actually a tremendous day. Sure. Happens all the and, time. And uh, this is one of those ways to just make sure that we're, we're in there. And then, you know, for ego lifters like me, it helps me not do stupid shit. So uh-huh. that's, that's why I started it a long time ago. <laughs> You're like, I need guardrails or I'm going to fucking kill myself. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I like it. I'm, uh, you know, a little bit of introspection there. Yeah. <laughs> that's some positive things. So Chris, you're, you're, I mean, you're working on this 10 years ago, right? You're kind of tinkering with it. So a little ahead of the curve. Is there anything you're, you're playing with now uh, that you think is going to be kind of the future of these strength sports without giving away, you know, like uh, your patented secrets? <laughs> um, <coughs> well, <clears throat> Uh, I think that there's definitely some ways to start looking at uh, fatigue thresholds as well. 
and quality of movement uh, as well when we're looking at these. Um, but for the most part, the units have to get more cost effective uh, individually before this is really gonna happen. So any of the quality units are really expensive. Uh, the gyroscope technology doesn't work for strength athletes. It may work for team sports where they're working in higher velocities or some more variabilities okay. Um, so that, uh, that's, that's gotta happen. Uh, I expect that that's gonna happen this year, by the way. So keep a lookout on uh, what we're doing. Um, you know, from equipment and stuff like that standpoint, like if we think about uh, the same concepts that I talked about with like barbells and being able to accommodate and rapidly adjust and all these sorts of things, that's where we need to go with that as well. And that's kind of my long-term vision is to recreate really what a gym looks like. So we're not talking about a specialty place that's training Olympic weightlifters, powerlifters, or strongmen, but just general athletic development, uh, gin pop, like all this sort of stuff is, uh, I, I want to flush that out in an entirely new, you know, concept as far as both the equipment and, you know, the methodologies that we teach and how we get people to move. And so that's, uh, that's what I, I hope to have an impact. That's, that's why I'm in this is I think that there's substantial positive change that needs to happen in the industry. And that's what I'm going to be trying to, uh, to change. I know that's mm -hmm. doesn't really give you a lot of meat no, no, to work with, but it does, it does. Cause you're trying to peel back. Like in my, here's my interpretation. So correct me if I'm wrong. Like the, there's this interesting in-home movement to just jump on a Peloton and that's, that's going to solve your life. Right. And there's a lot of allure behind it. And yeah. It, except there's no eccentric load on the bicycle. Well, which unless you're doing it upside down, completely fucking blow, you know, I, yeah. Right. I think you're onto something. <laughs> Inverted bicycling. <laughs> um, no, it's, it's, it, it's amazing. I'm like listening to all these people talk about how great the Peloton. I'm like, okay, great. Yeah. You, you need a big, large aerobic base helps with mitochondrial density and some other really jiggy stuff. But uh, what about eccentric load? And they're like, what do you mean? I'm like, it's always a push. Is like anyone even knows what yeah. that means. I know. And, uh, you know, and then people look at you with the, you know, the same just yeah. blank look on their face. Um, but I'm with you. Like, I'm feeling eccentric. Yep. <laughs> hey. Yeah. It's funny. The, uh, it's funny. All the competitive cyclists I know actually go to the gym and strength train. Mm. Have you ever seen those guys <laughs> squat? So, and they have monster fucking quads. I know they do. The teardrop. <laughs> I, I used to. I used to have a uh, a team. Uh, well, the coach is now uh, working with the uh, the Olympics, but uh, he trained his team when he was in Portland here, and it was funny because it was. He's like, the best compliment you can you can give the girls is you walk into the gym is just say, you know, wow, that ass is looking big. <laughs> and they're, they love it's it. Huge ass. <laughs> yeah, it's a huge ass. Yes, ass. thank you. <laughs> uh, we, uh, I trained out at Athletes Performance uh, when I was um, when I moved back to California when I was playing for the Chiefs and um, in the off season, and they had a, a couple guys that were Olympic cyclists, so like in the speed, you know, the speed cyclists, like the short, uh, what is like the pellet. Yep. Hippodrome? No, the Hippodrome would be a horse. It'd be uh, the Velodrome. Yeah, Velodrome. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's the team I worked with here too, dude. Yep. Uh, like watching these guys squat, one like very pleasing to watch them squat because they were so upright. Uh, it was like bored under the heels, narrow stance, and watching these dudes like bang out these like you know like uh, um, 
like the you know rock bottom squats no lockouts for like sets of 10 with like 500 and you're just like looking at like the the blood fill their quads and i'm like oh <laughs> yeah it just fills up like a balloon while you're watching Dude, <laughs> unbelievable and the only thing i could think of is like there has to be something in the adaptation with uh, like with the lactate in terms of like you know uh within the sprinting on the bike that almost mm-hmm. primes the muscle in such an interesting way and it was i think that was like my first kind of thought in terms of like you know if you look at you know, lactate in terms of releasing growth hormone and creating androgen profiles and all that. But like, I just remember thinking like, there has to be something that these guys are doing within the training of their sport that allows them to gain an inordinate amount of like muscle mass in their quads, because they're not the exception. Everybody has it. And I, and I was like, well, is it genetic selection? Is this sport selecting for people that are extremely quad heavy? But then I just remember thinking like, Fuck, man, it just might be something within the uh, like within the training of their movement that allows them to put on more muscle. Yeah. So uh, you were you were saying uh, about uh, peeling back uh, my explanation a little bit. Uh, wh- where was that going? Oh, I don't know. I forgot. Yeah, okay. not, obviously not important. Now we're we're talking quads yeah. now. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> and, and butts. So, and butts. Quads now, and butts. Let's now, go. Now, now let's. Uh, well, I'm going to change lactate. You're talking about lactate. I love this yeah, discussion. Yeah, hit it, man. Hit it, hit it. So, well, it's. Uh, so the first product we came out with with uh, Buildfast, which I love, it's a. Uh, it, it, people think of uh, uh, vast dilators as, I always say that word wrong. Anyway, uh, vasodilators as like pump products. So we have uh, we came out with uh, uh, you know one of those products and we put a lot of uh, lactate in it as well. Uh, and man, people don't realize what this can do for strength athletes as well when you've actually got like this continuous, like dilation and blood flow, like every day, your non-training days, and then also the ability to maintain that muscle fullness because you're not training heavy every day. And so like in my earlier, like I used to like do a pump sessions. If I hadn't like lifted heavy and I was coming into a session and it had been like a week, I would go do like a couple like full body days just to kind of fill out get my glycogen stores up so I could come into the session so I could move more weight on the training day. Unfortunately, that accumulates a little bit of fatigue and we can kind of do the same thing with supplementation though, and keeping that fuller much longer going in and you actually walk in and have an amazing session. What's the the, substrate that you're using like sodium bicarbonate or something? Um, no, uh, I, I, I have played around with that. Uh, unfortunately, it has some pretty negative uh, GI effects on a lot. Yeah, of Yeah, I was going to say uh, diarrhea uh, explosion. No, no, we're uh, we're using uh, calcium as uh, okay. as a carrier, so it's calcium lactate, and then it's got you know the NO three, uh, you know the arginine. It's got citrulline malate. All this, you know, just a cocktail. Well, there's four main ingredients, but the the research around it actually shows pretty significantly daily. So here's the thing: you have to use it daily. So we'll people pack think up a about box these, and send it down. God damn. I, I will. People think about because <laughs> the pump products, they've always been told, take it before you train. Sure. But it, it has to build up in your system. It actually has a huge benefit on your days off. And hmm. so um, we followed some research that did testing over 18 days of continuous uh, use and showed significant enhancement in anabolism, uh, endurance, hypertrophy, <laughs> and. Uh, and recovery. And that's where we base that off of. And it's been absolutely phenomenal, but it's really interesting because it's one, our approach is daily use, which nobody's really, nobody's pioneered that, uh, with, uh, with doing that type of product before. And the second is like, it has a significant 
impact on places beyond bodybuilding. It's not just about getting a good pump and having, you know, having your veins show like this is like, for me, it's been absolutely phenomenal for my recovery. I mean, blood flow is a huge component. I do, we do a lot of work with that. I mean, that's just getting up and moving is one of the biggest healing things. Well, part of that is that stimulating that process. So well, anyway, if you look at two if you want to try like, some, I'll send some yeah, down to you. No, no, dude, yeah. I, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm down. Like, I mean, I, I just read a really interesting research article that uh, analyzed and compared um, autophagy with like fasting versus exercise. And I get to the end of this thing and it's basically like a, a little bit of exercise is better than a whole lot of fasting for autophagy. So, I mean, there's some really fascinating stuff they're yeah. finding with like central nervous system tightening and a bunch of like really cool signaling with exercise. But um, the one thing which I'm always kind of geeked on, especially with lactate, is the idea that like uh, lactate bathing, and I, it's pretty interesting, like I think we know this from coming out of the CrossFit market, uh, you know, having played in the NFL, um, I was around a bunch of jack dudes all the time that didn't really train that hard. So like the CrossFit dudes didn't really do, and I was like, oh, they just look kind of small. But what I was yep. amazed by was the amount of muscle that the girls doing CrossFit were able to carry. And, you know, looking at the movements and like, you know, they're training heavy, I guess, a high protein diet. I mean, there were some things that were, you know, slightly out of the ordinary. But the only mechanism I could really think is, you know, this constant idea of like lactate bathing, of doing nothing but high intensity interval training to failure, you know, and it's, uh, it's a pretty interesting thing. I, I don't know if it has the same effect for guys, but it's a pretty fascinating deal for women. Yeah. I, I, I think that this, it's a really overlooked uh, component and we're starting to see more research on it. And there's, uh, yeah. <clears throat> anyway, if we start, you start digging into it, you'll start finding some stuff on improved uh, uh, cognition, uh, improved uh, blood sugar, you know, uh, blood glucose levels, reduced sure. hypertension, like all these things. Like it, it obviously makes more sense if you think about the mechanisms of action. Uh, but uh, it's uh, really interesting. And I, 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 yeah. No, it's, it's killer. No, that, that's cool. The, the other one I was going to ask you a little bit about is I know you're, uh, you mentioned one of the companies you're involved with now has to do with barefoot training. And so yeah. I wanted to wrap with you a little bit about your feet or more importantly, like some of the things you guys are doing for feet. And then I watched one of your videos and I saw you squat barefoot and your feet are pretty flat. So they're absolutely ask, flat. So and but, I was going to ask but, you a little about that. But here's, is, is that a problem? Is it? Well, it may be, it may not be, but I guarantee it's not if you look at my foot and ankle stack. So my ability to control my ankle position over the top of my foot is always spot on and never compromises. So a lot of people think this flat foot thing is like a, a diagnosis. Everybody's feet are different. It may or may not be an issue as long as we've got the strength within our foot to maintain these positions through movement. And so, you know, a lot of people think, Hey, I've got to mix my mobility work with my, with my, with my strength work. It's like a, a net, you know, if I do this, I have to do this. Well, here's the thing. Like squatting doesn't make your hips tight. Squatting like shit makes your hips tight. <laughs> it's a, it's a protective measure. Like if we're not using, uh, you know, you know, a joint correctly, the body's going to try to protect you. And that happens by starting to restrict the movement around that joint. So I find this discussion really funny because, uh, you know, Olympic weightlifters need to wear lifters. If you're doing certain movements, you have to wear them. But there's a whole community of people that think you just need to use them all the time. Uh, and just doing like a powerlifting squat, it's a must have. And, oh, it's, uh, I'm, last, I'm lacking dorsiflexion. Well, here's a question. Why are you lacking dorsiflexion? 
Because people have shitty ankle mobility. Well, why do they yeah. have shitty ankle mobility? Because they wear oldie shoes all the time. Because they have a weak foot. And they have a weak foot. And they, and the they have a weak foot, you. and the body is going to try to protect the joints around it, which is going to limit the mobility of the ankle. Well, the and body so, won't allow you to go into ranges of motion in which it can't stabilize. Exactly. So uh, I've been training barefoot for five years now, and mostly barefoot. I mean, I, I, I'm at home or my, I'm at the gym. And so these are places I own. I don't wear shoes. <laughs> and my feet have become incredibly jacked in the process. <laughs> like, uh, and they've actually reformed. They've started to white. I've already had wider feet, but they've actually display has increased the movement of my toes, the control, the proprioception, the awareness that I've got going on on my foot, how to use it. So the important thing that people need to focus on is being able to control that foot and ankle stack, which comes down to actually having a strong and usable foot. And so I'm not saying, hey, barefoot lifting is the best way. Okay. But I'm saying people need to spend time outside of their shoes Amen. and actually using their foot and being aware of their foot and learning how to how to use and control it. Um, a lot of people can't even like move their toes independently or lift the big toe uh, by itself. Uh, there's a lot of stuff there that needs to come back because it's one of the most dense areas of our body for muscles, tendons, bones, ligaments, all this stuff. Now, uh, guy at Home Depot, he's wearing a, a back brace all day, every day. Is that doing him good? Hell no. No, it's not. It's limiting his movement. It's actually teaching him not to use the stabilization processes that our body is having. And it's actually increasing his recent entry, not necessarily at his work, but in his life. Um, because we're detraining and teaching the body not to use and move appropriately because we've restricted, we've restricted this area of the body. But somehow everybody in fitness knows this. Anybody I talk to knows that, hey, that guy wearing the back brace at Home Depot, that's not doing him any good. But you don't think about it with your restrictive footwear. You're no, walking I mean, around <laughs> even more. They're tied, locked down, not able to move, not able to feel, not able like, and that's having a negative impact. No wonder your foot is weak. Yeah, so, no, I mean, we've seen it for years. I mean, I, um, I grew up in Southern California and, you know, we only wore shoes when we went to school. And then uh, when we did, we wore bands, which have been zero drops since 1966. Yep. And I remember when I came in the NFL, and you guys have heard me tell this story, there was an old Jewish podiatrist we had who said, hey, man, I'll make you a deal because I have high arches. Um, I'll make you orthotics today and we can shake hands. Or if you let me show you how to stretch your feet and, and how to manage and take care of your feet, yeah. I won't have to make you orthotics. And so I was like, man, I'll, you, I'll do that. And he also you, said, I don't want you to wear shoes. The only time I want you to wear shoes is on the football field exactly. uh, when you wear so, your boots. And, and if you need to wear them. So if somebody squats more in lifters, put them on. But still, do some accessories, do some warm-ups, do some goblet squats, walk, like spend some time strengthening and using the foot elsewhere, like under load so you can actually use it. And you had a great podiatrist, by the way. Yeah, so no, he was meta, sure. meta analysis of orthotics show that there is no long-term benefit. So I get this no. question at a podcast yesterday. They're like, tell me the science and research behind your position on your shoes. And I'm like, tell me the science of position research on the position that shoes do anything good. Because there is none. Yeah, no, I mean, there's some. Now, you cool need them for yeah. uh, environment, cuts, <laughs> hot, uh, disease. So you need shoes, but it needs to be like a more of a moccasin type that can yeah. move and allow splay and 
but still protect you from the environment. Moccasins. Well, well don't. Moccasins. No, don't moccasins. Get, Let's build don't our Don't you guys moccasins. remember, um, and I know you, you, you guys well, might have never seen this, but did you ever see Shaka Zulu? Here. Keep so, going. Here, so, here, 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 here's, my, here's my moccasins, by the way. Huh. Nice. Those are classy Let, for our I, listeners. I was going to say we got a big power bear here on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so this is this is the the shoe by Barefoot Athletics. Uh, what I wanted to do is actually create a, a shoe, sell it to lifters, but have the looks good enough to hopefully encourage people to just start wearing them, wearing it to and from the gym, and spending more time in life. So it's actually like a casual footwear. Well, we can add uh, fashionista to his uh, uh, list of accomplishments. Well, I, it's, it's a serious, fashionista. it's a serious, <laughs> so it's a serious thing because I, I, I actually, because that is the big driver of why people wear shoes is fashion like that. Mm-hmm. And it causes a lot of dysfunction. You wouldn't believe how much back knit knee and hip pain yeah, are a sure. result of shoes. Um, and I could show you in hand, yeah. like in person, what it does uh, no, to I, control of everything. Dude, I, but, I, I believe you. I mean, Cal Dietz made a great point to me where he said, you know, 99% of the world's interaction is through the foot on this earth. So the 99, how we interact with this earth is through the foot. And it just makes sense that if that is weak, everything's going to come up chain. Sure. And so, you know, if we start at the feet, we can fix a lot of shit. I remember when he made that comment, I was like, oh, he's so right. It, it is. It's a hundred percent right. So that's what I'm trying to do here though, because there's other barefoot shoemakers out there and they are they're they're focused on runners and hippies and i have <laughs> I nothing say, against I, actually i was gonna say hippies and you you beat me to it i was like at, damn it at, at, and uh I, I joke because i live in portland but I, I call it a very portland-esque design style the design style that if you wear these shoes you are not going to get laid <laughs> by your first your guess. wife your boyfriend your girlfriend it doesn't it doesn't matter you put on a pair of vibram five fingers and you're guaranteed your sex life is going to go down. So that's, uh, that's why I'm like, somebody, this. Some, so, so some, I'm like, that's why somebody needs to create like something that is a barefoot shoe that doesn't have that, that aesthetic, that design style. Like, so that's, that's why I'm, that's why I'm doing it. So see, I'm immediately to, going to like imagining like a burlap sack with like a rope around the top. You just stick your feet in, uh, you know, the, to protect um, you from the, in, the, uh, intern scabies you left here. Oh yeah. Well, he and Tex are over there having toe sex. No, <laughs> actually I blame him for me going uh, back to wearing. Shoes. So, so we, we used to roll barefoot and then our, our intern showed up and he figured, Hey, I'm going to roll in barefoot. So I see him take his shoes off, and he uh, must have had some, like, bed bugs or some uh, something oh, weird. No, it was just gnarly. Uh, I haven't taken my shoes off in there, and we've literally coated it with, like, Simple Green repeatedly. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I'm going to wait a year. I'm going to let a couple cycles of heat. And <laughs> I saw you walking around. I'm like, whoa. Mm-hmm. Yep. I just find that, like, an older pair of loose vans that aren't laced up yep. tend to fit the uh, the bill for me yep. pretty well. That way I don't have to get, you know, and Unfortunately, uh, like, the vans and the Converse are still a little too narrow in the toe box, yeah, in my some, opinion. Yeah, for some folks, and, right? Well, it, 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 for some folks, but more folks than you would think because they're fitting their current shape of their shoe, of their foot, which has actually been bound for the last 20, 30 years. If you spend more time... F- barefoot, you'll find that your foot will actually start widening a bit. And so I really like, especially for lifting, uh, most all the barefoot style shoes are actually inadequate because they're still a little too narrow because you actually have the opportunity to display more when you're under load and accelerate this process. So we've gone with a a wider toe box in ours, Mm, uh, just in general, because it, it is designed for being in the gym. And so 
It's, are uh, you, Tex, are you saying that the women's boat shoes you were wearing previously? <laughs> they uh, splayed great. Uh, <laughs> Chris, just, just to give you a little backstory. Um, Bringing it back. Uh, Vans, you thought that sucker uh, died. Uh, here's Vans, a, are here's kind of our com- uh, Vans are kind Scab- of our... Scabies only Hang live... Hang on, I'll kill his mic. Uh, sorry. Scabies <laughs> only live one to two months. <laughs> <laughs> so Vans are kind of our company shoe. And so Chris probably gets on Amazon and he saw some cool looking shoes that showed up and he puts them on and they were slip-on. It was a little warm during in the summer he comes walking in and i'm like are you really wearing women's boating shoes and he's like no 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 these are guy shoes and uh, i got on amazon and i typed in vans women's boating shoes and they popped right up <laughs> and uh and then that the is a story is, that needs retold over well, and over again yes oh, yeah. Yeah. so, no, I have so a reminder and, in my calendar and, and the this best part about schedule. it is at this point he knows that we know but he won't let on so he just rides out and be like i'm just gonna wear them these are great and then all of a sudden he's like wearing them and he's like no no, no these are guys so he held the company line even oh, yeah. though i sent you the links and uh, we've they attacked were, you on this podcast about oh, it. Were great, they were great to sprint in for exactly the discussion <laughs> we're going to. So I was literally pounding pavement as hard and fast as I could to wear these shoes out. <laughs> well, faster. With, women's boating shoes, I, I don't think would have wear a the, wide Wear them out faster box. so you could get rid of them. Yeah. Oh, exactly. and, and then all of a sudden they just disappeared. And he's like, oh, I'm going to try something else. I'm like, yeah, so for from our, the men's section. Chris, for our loyal podcast listeners, they'll remember this. It was, I believe... November 2017 to Nicole Davis's episode (laughs) in December 2019. (laughs) You ruined my chances with Nicole Davis, Olympia volleyball player, by showing her my shoes. Your chances of 1%? Uh, You're you're saying saying there's there's a chance. chance. (laughs) Could it be the fact that you're 5'6 and she's like 6 feet? No. Which, no, she's she's the short, I forget the name of the position. Like 5'10? Yeah, the 5'10 one? Yeah. Yeah. No, 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 no. (laughs) Chris, how tall are you? Uh, 5'11". 5'11". Damn. Now, is that in your, your barefoot boots or, or shoes or your cowboy boots? I need to know because I have a <laughs> yeah, friend here yeah, which, who only gives boot your, height. What's your high school football <laughs> program height? <laughs> uh, no idea. I actually didn't play uh, football. I, uh, oh. I well, ran I, cross country. My guess is it would have been 6'4". <laughs> <That's laughs> yeah, okay. Luke was 6'4 in high school. Yeah. And it's weird. You shrunk like six inches. That's boot height. <laughs> cleat, cleat height. So you, your background is in cross country, huh? So then, what? Where's uh, the... Not, not, not really. So I, I was the largest and slowest like cross country runner in the state. Uh, <laughs> but it got me in shape for wrestling, and I was a pretty good wrestler. You know, oh, that's good. a similar but... profile to John's CrossFit Games profile. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh... I remember one of the uh, the football coach. I uh, he he brought his son up a few years ago, and he was reminding me of a story I forgot about. He's like, yeah, he's like one time. So all the teams we played were on the other side of the mountain. So it was always like a, a two, three hour drive to get to any sporting event. And we ended up having the same uh, a game or meet at the same place. So the football team was all upset about having to ride with the, with, with the wussy cross country team. So they're in the bus, like just going on and on and on about it, you know, oh, and then, uh, and they, the coach saw me walking up and everybody in the school knew who I was. And uh, and he's like, I want you to say that to the first person on the cross country team that walks on this bus. I walk up the stairs and it's just dead silence. (laughs) (laughs) Wimpy football players. Well, I was like the strongest guy around. So (laughs) even though I ran cross country, I didn't understand sports specific uh, training at the time. So uh, I did track and field and I ran the the 100, the 200, the 400, the 800, the 1500, and the 3000. And basically every throwing event and some jumping events and 
and I was I was pretty decent at all of them, except so, well the really long distance stuff. You were the track team. It's yeah. like <laughs> and, uh, and, and I'm like, if I had just like focused on like the ones I was good at and gotten better, I like, damn, I was so stupid. <laughs> like, why didn't my coach ever just say, hey? Yeah, focus do the 200 to the 400 and throw the shot put. You're okay. So that, were those, <laughs> did you play any stick and ball sports or was it just track? Uh, it was just track and uh, wrestling. Uh-huh. Oh, okay. Or, okay. Yeah. yeah, no, wrestling, um, my little boy's going to be four in March and I'm trying to find a wrestling program for him to start. Uh, he's been, like we wrestle probably 25 times a day and uh, and then he tries to wrestle uh, his sisters and then when we other see other little kids he's just like screams wrestle and tries to tackle them around the neck so I'm <laughs> yeah like, you need to get him in a wrestling oh, program yes yeah. and like I, I grew up with two older brothers so like we had like our daily wrestling fights whereas like <laughs> I'm like looking at him like man and then so I called a wrestling coach uh, they got a bunch of wrestling clubs here in Texas and they're like oh you know they got to wrestle kids of their same size general age we don't really have a bunch of kids so I've been trying to rally all these uh like all of his little buddies I'll meet their dads and I'll be like are you interested in your son wrestling because I think we should start a little wrestling group. So I'm, I think I'm pr- pretty good on maybe pretty close on lobbying a bunch of dads to let me like take their four-year-olds over and let them like wrestle each other, which I think would be a blast. Yeah. That's one thing I wish I'd gotten. I, my first experience was freshman in high school, and, and I was wrestling all these guys that have been wrestling their whole life growing up. And uh, I sucked that first year. <laughs> let me no, tell it's, you. It, uh, by far the toughest dudes I've ever met were always had some form of wrestling background. And it just uh, like it just teaches hard work and work ethic. And um, it's just, and, yeah. yeah, no, it's, it's good. I, uh, I remember in high school, I played football and um, I remember we got into like this big fight with a bunch with like a, people from another school. And like all of a sudden, like these football players started like hightailing it. And I look and there's like five or six of like these like, you know, like sub 200 pound wrestlers out there killing people. And I'm like, those are our guys, fucking pussy ass <laughs> football players. So that's a good one. You got anything else? Yeah. Well, Chris, the book, right? Before that, I want to talk Kabuki because in the beginning, in your intro, you said this is one of our pillars. I forget specifically you mentioned. But, Charity. Oh, Philanthropy. Yes, that, Philanthropy. Right. This is one of the pillars. So I'm curious, what are the other pillars? And is this is this a mindset, business philosophy? Well, he did a deal for pediatric cancer. For the month of Peter, we we have a charity uh, called Wade's Army, which uh, funds neuroblastoma, uh, neuroblastoma research. So we've raised to date over a million dollars in the last what six seven years? Eight. Yeah, eight years. So yeah, we've had this five hundred one c three for it. So yeah, it's a big deal for us. Yeah. So we we've got uh, four pillars, and you know some of these come out of like my personal philosophy, uh, which is expounded a lot more in the book, um, but. Uh, uh, it, these are just like cornerstones of, of the business. And one of those is just like manufacturing innovation. So bringing innovation into this market uh, to enhance health and performance. Uh, having education is really a cornerstone. So like I said, we think of ourselves as an education-based company first. So that's really a driver behind like w- the products that we produce versus the other way around. So I think that really significantly differentiates us because we have a specific lens that we're looking at, you know, this environment with that is very different than any other uh, person there. And then uh, coaching is the the third component of what we do. So it's the the hands on. Here's the uh, here's the equipment. Here's the methodology. And if you need the help, we can actually walk you through this entire process ourselves uh, through personalized coaching, movement assessments, 
that we have a whole lot of different programs. And then the last one is really just giving back to our community is the, is the fourth pillar. So it's really understanding who and what we are as a company and what we stand for that helps us like, you know, this is, this is what we look at. Like anytime we're, you know, making business decisions is really, you know, why are we in existence? What are we trying to do? And to wrap all that up is like, what are we trying to do? We're trying to help people live better through strength, through understand, you know, having the methodology, the tools to be able to have it be nothing more than an additive thing in life. Cause unfortunately that's not what our industry has been for a long time. I think we're getting there, but so many people, I did that till bad back, bad knee, whatever. Like it, it ends up taking away from certain people from their lives where our ability to adapt to stress and become stronger and better versions of ourselves, Like that's, that should be, that should be a powerful additive thing in your life. And I want it to, I want it to be that way. And, 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 uh, you know, supporting the people that, you know, understand and have come to reality with the physical culture, the being physical in this world is an incredible thing for your mental health, your emotional health and all this sort of stuff. If that gets taken away from somebody through pain or dysfunction or whatever it is, that can be a really, really challenging thing. And so that's why we're in existence. That's what we're trying to do. And that's, and those are the four ways that we're trying to impact that. Well, muscle Tools. and strength is by far our best currency. I mean, you think why people grow, you know, like why people end up dying and especially as they age, as they lose muscle, they fall, they break a hip, they hurt themselves. Next thing you know, they're bedridden and it ends. And it's, uh, you know, your, your ability to maintain, the person that can maintain muscle and strength the longest is the one that has the greatest chance of survival and it becomes our greatest currency is absolutely uh, you know so it, it's a it's a constant <clears throat> pursuit and unfortunately they aren't selling it like that and i think if they explain to somebody the stronger and the more muscle you can carry the longer you will survive on you know actuary charts i mean they have actuary charts that show and, uh, as you yeah. start losing muscle this is where you die and they well, know that, exactly and like what just yeah, general health and susceptibility to yeah. like disease and shit well like that. well muscle is extremely insulin sensitive i mean fat's mm -hmm. extremely oxidative and it seems like the more muscle you can carry the greater mm -hmm. chance you have for metabolic flexibility and all the other good stuff mm -hmm. associated with it yep and so that's that's what we have and that's why we have a principle-based company we we believe in certain principles around movement and loading and that influences all aspects of our company because there's there's other companies out there that are educators there's other companies out there that are producers of tools but they're do you know you can go on a, a site and they'll have articles of one opinion and then like i used to write for some and they'd be like here's breathing and bracing and then it says linked popular articles, another article on the site about how to do a vacuum. And that's what you should be doing. I'm like, well, these are opposite. You're not really, you're producing educational content, but it's not, it's not unified around, uh, you know, okay, an, an entire evidence-based approach of how, uh, 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 you know, systematic principle-based approach. And that's what we do. And I think that's, I think it really differentiates us in the industry, especially combining that with not just, you know, we coach, we educate, and we produce the tools. So then lead us into your book, man. So this is, you said this philosophy is a bit influenced by your life, and it sounds like the book expands on that? Yeah. So um, I, uh, I won't say that my life's worse than anybody else's or had more challenges, but I've definitely had a unique life scope that most haven't, and uh, a lot of time to think and have introspection during the course of that 
that has developed, you know, some key philosophical points of how I approach life. And I've achieved success in a number of different ways beyond what I talked about in the intro. And we'll kind of go into that. But <clears throat> it's the same concept is we as human beings adapt to stress. Okay. So to elicit change, to really grow and stay alive, you have to have stress that you're going to, to, to that's going to drive that. And that's not just physical, but emotional, mental, or maybe even spiritual. And, and so it's really important to understand that, you know, we shouldn't be running from, ch from, from challenges. We shouldn't be running from the things that scare us. We should embrace those that when we can, obviously you've, you can't do it 24 seven, just like you can't do seven hours of CrossFit a day, seven days a week. You know, you've got to have your time to rest and recuperate and get your bearing. So it's all a balance of that. But uh, so my book is an autobiography, but it's really written. Every chapter has themes in it that uh, lead towards basically the last uh, quarter of the book really pulls all this together in a in a way to, to look at life. And it's really it's really about driving introspection uh, from the individual to understand what their values are in life. And I think this is really important for people to understand. We see a lot of people out there that are, they've got their goal list, they've got their bucket list, or they're, you know, moving around all the time and they're jumping to the process too soon. You really have to understand what you want out of life, what you truly value first. Why do you want these things? And, you know, one of the examples I, 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 I go to commonly is, you know, somebody that wants uh, a mansion and a, and a fancy car. And I use that one because in the uh, entrepreneur world, they have the, uh, the, the hustle porn stuff going on, like just work your ass off and drive and someday you'll get to have a car and a house like me. And that's when you'll know you're successful. And I'm like, well, but why, why do you want those things? If you don't understand why you want something, you could really go down the wrong path. So for me, you know, I've got a lot of values and I understand what they are. One of those values is security. And so for somebody else, they could say, hey, not understanding why, they just, hey, I want those things. I want that fancy house and a car. And it's because of their value of security, let's say. Because they know once they've been successful in life enough to get those things, they'll have be able to to have they'll be able to take care of themselves, be able to take care of their family. But if you don't know that, you might over leverage yourself to get those things and actually create the opposite of security. So there's really not no morality based in in the book. It's like whatever you know whatever our reasons are, because again, I've got other ones that could make me want that. I love, I love recognition. So for me, my values are recognition for what I want, a sense of accomplishment and, 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 and doing things. Creativity, security is one kind of works in antithesis to, to those others. Continual learning. There's five. I've got a few more. And uh, it, you've got to understand these things before you actually start setting goals so you can create a life that will really realize this. And the beauty of that is you can start cutting out a lot of other fluff in your life that you'll find. People see all the things I do and they're like, how do you, how do, you do this, Chris? 
Like right now, I got four different businesses. I got the war rig in the back. I got my family at home. I've got, I'm competing at, or not competing. I'm doing uh, circus lifts at the highest level. Uh, <clears throat> and like, you know, you must not sleep at night. Well, I don't do a lot of things don't, that don't align with what I want out of life. And that creates so much more time to actually accomplish the things. So let me give you just a brief description of like the storyline of the book. But uh, I grew up homeless and we're talking like living in the mountains, you know, walking down to the stream with a jug of water and filling it up so I could set it in the sun and uh, on a rock and pour it over my head at the end of the day to take a shower, foraging for mushrooms, killing animals, fishing in the stream, got to chase the grasshoppers first, learning how at six years old to capture and hold and kill live rattlesnakes because they're all over the place. You know, our, we've got beams tied up in the branches of the, you know, that our bedding's in to keep away from the snakes at night while we sleep. I dealt with murderers, drug running, drug abuse, a serial killer, um, human trafficking, a lot of freaking shit I've seen in my early life. Okay. And <clears throat> got taken by the state for a while, ended up back in the mountains in Oregon. So all this was the earlier stuff was Northern California wilderness. And, um, where were you raised? But, like, like Eureka area? Um, so yeah, that, uh, uh, that area. So it was, uh, uh, started in uh, the mountains outside of Ukiah, mm -hmm. uh, first, uh, Mendocino County, and then later moved up into Trinity County. Mm -hmm. And we were really on the, uh, out in the Trinity wilderness, uh, on the board border of Humboldt County. Yeah. No, um, I, um, I got family that lives up in that area. So I'm, I've been up there many a time. Okay. So, uh, and then, uh, then ended up in Eastern Oregon, um, uh, later on. Were I ended your up parents pretty young when, when they had you and your and your brothers? Yes. Well, my mom was, my, my dad was a bit older. Um, but, uh, I was raised by another man that was the, the, uh, 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 father of my three sisters and <clears throat> my mom, she, well, they're all really intelligent people. Like my dad was a member of Mensa. My mom was supposed to be a was going to college to be a chemical engineer, had student athlete award for Santa Rosa high school, which had like you know, 1500 kids in it. Sure. Uh, and, uh, she just didn't want to be a part of society. So they were kind of hippies, huh? Yes. Yeah. So just, I went to Berkeley as a background, so I am familiar okay. with, with, yeah. With, yeah. So, uh, this is, uh, so this is, you know, uh, late seventies sure. going into, well, early seventies going into the late seventies. Uh, there was still a big remnant of that population. And my mother sure. was very much, um, wanted to forge her own. And, uh, that basically her plan was to grow weed in the mountains and live off grid and be able to figure out some way to not be part of society, which is, she's got her reasons for that. Uh, she's really intelligent, really a hard worker. It really wasn't a matter of, it was just her choice. And, uh, that is what it is. And, <clears throat> but you know, alcohol and drugs and all that does numbers on people's too. So things got really continued to get worse at home. And by the time I, so I ended up getting a full ride academic scholarship uh, to go to, go to college. And I left and went to do that and didn't communicate back home for a couple years. The, 
because, you know, anytime I'd call home, I'd have to give money and, and, uh, you know, I had enough of going on in my own life that, uh, that I decided not to do that. And then I, I did find out what was going on and gotten way worse. Uh, my mom had had a breakdown, ended up out in Montana and my sisters were living, you know, on the street. <laughs> and so I ended up taking custody of my three sisters and raising all of them while I finished my engineering degrees and my MBA and was working on my career and uh, got all of them kind of raised and off on their own. Uh, we've got very close relationships because I've been around them and been kind of a father figure and brother at the same time. <clears throat> and uh, then I, 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 so that's the first half of the book basically is, and I call that the Eagle. And it's really about separating your identity. So understanding that bad things may happen to you or around you, but you're not a product of your environment. You're defined, they're obviously, it's obviously going to have an impact on you, but the definition of oneself, one's identity is really your response to those actions. It's what you do with your life, not, not what's been done to you. And I, I and that's a, I, I think it's a really important distinction because we even see it just in the gym. Like people come in, it's like, who are you? And you hear the story. I'm the person that's got a bag back and going to be in pain for the rest of my life. I'm the person that's got alcoholic parents and this is why I am the way that I am. I, you know, like you'll hear these like storylines that people are creating for themselves about who they are. And it's really not about them at all. And so you've got to separate that. And so I've got this uh, Eagle tattoo that I had done around 20 years old. There's one on my stomach, one on my back and they wrap. There's a, they're both uh, trying to take flight, but there's a chain around their ankle and it's tied down to my ankle uh, where they're shackled. And it's, it's really saying to me, you can fly to whatever heights you want in this world. At the end of the day, the only thing holding you back is yourself. And so it's about discovery of one's own strengths, one's capability in the world, one's identity. And uh, so I ended up, <clears throat> I mentioned my career earlier. So I ended up being a, advancing my leadership to where I was a corporate executive. Uh, I was hired to come in and do company turnarounds and things of that nature. I was really well known. And uh, for what I did, I was paid really well, uh, <clears throat> had a very secure life. And I had to ask myself some questions again. And this is the dragon. So I've got this Ouroboros, this big dragon head on my chest. And his body wraps all around my shoulders, my arms, and comes back around. It's eating its own tail, and which sounds a, a bit grim, but it's, it's not. It's about the continual reinvention of oneself. And I, I use this as the, the purposeful reinvention of oneself. It is deciding specifically who in this world that you want to be in becoming that person. And so this is at the time I, I sat back and I said, okay, I've got this great life by everybody's standards, but it's not really, I don't think I'm doing what I think I have the capability of doing in the world. I, I love the leadership work because that's where I really refined and honed my coaching skills, my ability to get people to accomplish a lot more in life than that they, they thought they could and like getting them engaged and like just, it was really powerful for me, but I felt that I could do so much more in the world, more on the physical side of it. And, uh, and 
with, with this stuff and the knowledge base that I had. I'd owned a gym on the side, by the way, during, since like early 2000s. I had a 9,000 square foot gym. I did coaching in the evenings. We had a bunch of people. It's, that's a pretty big gym. And uh, that was a, a side project for me. And it was at that time, um, you know, I decided to, to become basically the current version of what I am. And so I walked away from a lot in my life. Uh, I walked away from high paying, secure career to, uh, to live the entrepreneur world of, of, uh, of risk and uncertainty uh, through my life savings in the, in the tank, um, made some very significant changes in personal relationships um, because uh, relationships are, well, they're, the, they're the rocket fuel that propels everything in our lives. And so we need to really invest in the people that we, you know, we, we need to take time and invest in people around you. Um, but that also means not using that time on people that we're not saying people that say no to ideas, but people that are a continual negative drag on that, those energy levels and never really on the contributing side. Um, you do need people in your life that are going to challenge you on things. You don't want yes, yes, men or women around you. Um, but I ended up uh, changing a lot of personal relationships, including my marriage uh, during the course of this and, and, and came back out uh, really doing what I'm doing now and trying to have this impact and change the world and what I, in the ways that I, I feel. And the biggest thing about this for me is really showing this to my kids to be able to demonstrate through my actions, not just my words uh, or my beliefs, to show them that in their life, they can change and mold the world to their will as well, that they can live the life that they want if they choose to and take the, and, 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 and that's, that's the legacy, the real legacy that I want to leave is to have them see me do that every day so that they know They've got the same capability. Um, <clears throat> I can go off on a tangent on uh, kind of parenting styles in our day and age, but uh, I'll, I'll refrain from that right now. Next and so, <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, that's uh, so that's kind of the, the bigger story. It's a very engaging story. There's a lot of ups and downs and all sorts of uh, in there. Um, but it's uh, it's really mixed with a lot of really usable pieces. Um, to help you reflect and kind of drive you down the process yourself. Because I can't tell you how to live. I can't tell you what's important to you. I can't tell you what your values are. But I can help drive you in the direction to be chasing the things that are going to help deliver that for you in your life. And, uh, and that's what the book's about. Sweet. So where do people find, like, where do they get it? Amazon? Uh, uh, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, uh, Audible. Uh, you can get uh, actually you can get a, a free download of the audio version on my personal website, uh, ChristopherDuffin.com. You'll get a a free copy of it and one other book if you uh, sign up for an Audible account through that site, which is pretty cool. Yeah, um, and that's my personal site's got links to all the other businesses, Barefoot, uh, uh, Build Fast, and Kabuki as well, uh, but it's got. It'll take you to a buying link for the book. If you just want to buy it too, you can do that. Whichever doesn't matter to me. Uh, we do sell signed copies uh, through Kabuki Strength. So if you buy a copy through Kabuki Strength, it's, uh, it's a signed copy. But uh, it's been a bestseller in five different categories on Amazon for, for a little while. 
psychology, autobiographies, uh, self-help. So um, check out the reviews. When I say it's a life-changing book, like this book has literally changed a lot of people's lives at this point. And uh, you can see it in the reviews. I wish I could share all the the, 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 the emails and messages I get uh, about uh, the impact it's really had on, on people. And I'm so thankful that I was able to articulate it and put it in a way that it didn't come across as like a, a braggy, like, ah, I'm Chris, I'm awesome, man. Mm-hmm. There's all the stuff I've done, which is I wanted it to be a book that helps people. And uh, it's a tricky line, and you're never certain if you really hit it until you actually put it in people's hands and they, sure. they start reading it. And because uh, it's you can't trust yourself and you can't trust your friends and family for that uh, <laughs> for that side of it. So that's fantastic, dude. Yeah. Congratulations on that, man. Thank you. That's epic. You got anything else? We got? I think we're good. Chris, thanks for your time, man. Appreciate it. I know it's valuable in this space, this entrepreneurial world, especially when you got four badges you're carrying. Well, and I'm always amazed at. Um... Chris asked what podcast you should go on, and everybody's like, Power Athlete Radio. And then that's when he hit me up, and I was like... you know how many... I've been spending two years creating those accounts and following Chris <laughs> to get this. No. I, uh, <laughs> no, and, and it was there was of, There was a bunch... There was a bunch of... Yeah, there, your was, yours was way up there as far as a uh, number of people recommended I get on here. Yeah, we so were... Sweet. Uh, I was like... And, and so when he emailed me, I clicked back and looked at the deal, and I was like, do all these people listen to our podcast? I only thought it was like your mom, uh-huh. my mom. I love you, mom. Yeah. Yeah. All three people that we know, maybe mm-hmm. Texas dad. Mm-hmm. But uh, no, Chris, thanks a lot, man. And uh, thank you, Power Athlete Nation, for listening to another episode of the premier podcast in strength and conditioning. Ing, ing. And get on to ChristopherDuff.com, get the goodies, make it happen. He's got tons of stuff for you, for you, for your family, for your kids. Make it happen. Chris, thanks again, man. Thank you. Thank you. Drop on, drop on, drop on. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. You can find out everything you want to know about Chris Duffin, his book, The Eagle and the Dragon, and Kabuki Strength by either heading to ChristopherDuffin.com or KabukiStrength.com. Until next time, bye! <laughs>